Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. I have two confessions to make. One, I didn't realize it was Father's Day this weekend until about two days ago when my daughter asked me, why are you going to Ottawa on Father's Day? So if you came expecting a Father's Day message this morning, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Um, apologize for that. The other confession I have to make is that this is not my regular Bible because my regular Bible is sitting on the table right next to the door of my house, which I realized at about New Liskert, which is two and a half hours away from Timmins. So you're going to have to bear with me a little bit this morning. I do have my notes on my phone in very small writing. So I'm going to try and navigate this as best as I can. I'm going to put this on Do Not Disturb so I don't get a phone call in the middle. So a little patience this morning uh, is appreciated. There we go. Uh, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 3 to begin. Uh, I've been doing a study through the book of Romans as I've been preaching in Timmins. Um, what I want to do this morning, this is really the pivot point in Paul's argument. Romans is Paul's explanation of the gospel in full. A and he's, he's building an argument as he goes. Um, so really, when you, when you look at the book of Romans, you, you have to take at least the first eight chapters as a whole. Uh, you can get very confused if you start picking pieces out of it. Um, for example, in chapter 2, where Paul describes how God will judge and, and he will render unto a person according to what they've done. You could pull that out and, and get a very uh, different view of the gospel uh, than the one that Paul's trying to present. In that particular passage, he's, just, he's making the point that God is a, a righteous judge that he will judge people according to what they have done. And if they've done rightly, then they will earn eternal life. But if not, they won't. But his argument doesn't end there. He continues to go on to, to say that, well, there's no one who can meet that standard. So as we look at the book of Romans, we have chapter 1. And I'm just going to give a very general overview of the first three chapters. Um, chapter 1 is the uh-oh passage. Is the passage which tells us all of the things that God is angry with, that his wrath is there against. Uh, and Paul uses two words when he describes this. He's not, he didn't just pull his thesaurus out and try and find two things that, that's, you know, when we, when we were in high school and we had to do a 200 word essay and you, you know, pull the thesaurus out and see how many different uh, words of the same, the same meaning you can add to it to extend it out to 200 words. That's not what Paul does there. He says that God's angry with two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that that unrighteousness leads to a suppression of the truth. And those are two different things. The ungodliness is a rejection of God. He says in chapter 1 that, that they do not acknowledge God for who he is or give thanks to him. Not only that, they have exchanged his glory for the glory of idols. 
Her idols made images of created things. And because of that, God gives them over to unrighteousness. And we see the list there uh, in Romans chapter 1. And that is, uh, that is the uh-oh passage. That is the we are in trouble before God. God is rightly angry with us. Now in chapter 2, Paul begins it by addressing a particular type of person. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. You see, there's a, a danger when we read through chapter 1 to kind of think of that as an us versus them passage. Be like, well, like all of those things are pretty bad, and, and that's not me. Like, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm pretty okay. And Paul addresses that person in chapter 2. By saying, you who judge, you can't judge others if you're actually doing those same things. And in fact, you know, if God is a righteous and just judge, and you think you're okay, you think that you're fine and dandy, you know, the, the self-righteous is really the audience of chapter 2. It says, no, you're, you're going to be judged just as harshly as those who do all the things in chapter 1, because guess what? That's you too. We all fit in that category. And as he continues on that, in that argument in chapter 3, he, if, he, if there is any misunderstanding, the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about how there, there isn't anyone righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one, none who seek after God, none who understand. Culminating in verse 20, and that is where we're going to start this morning. And like I said, this is, this is the pivot point of the passage. This is the pivot point of, Mar of uh, the Apostle Paul's argument. He, he leads up to this point in the first three chapters, and then from chapters 4 through to 8, he expounds on this point. And it's this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's Paul's grand argument here, that righteousness, this new righteousness that has been manifested in Jesus Christ is not by works of the law, not by following the law, but is by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is his grand point. Now this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at an interaction that Jesus has with someone who has this worldview, who is so concerned about the works of the law that he had 
He had done them all since he was a boy. And yet he still knew and understood that something was wrong. So we're going to go turn over to Mark chapter 10. And I want to go through the story that we know as the rich young ruler. Thank you. One of the things I want to illustrate this morning um, is the danger of presuppositions. Uh, the danger of thinking we know how the world works. Because this is a, this is a person that we're about to, to see here who, who thinks they know how the world works and how things happen. We're also going to see the disciples and they too think they know how the world works and what the rules are. And we're going to find that Jesus goes about the task of disposing of these ideas and breaking them down and showing both this rich young ruler and his disciples that they really don't understand what's going on. Now, my favorite illustration of this is one of the most shocking movies that I ever saw. Now, I'm a bit of a movie buff. I admit that. Um, I don't know if I'm proud of that or not. I haven't decided yet. But to the point where I can usually figure out how a movie's going to end by about the one-third of the way through Mark. Because they're not really that creative. In Hollywood, they tend to just do the same things over and over again. So it would be a rare occasion that I would come up against a movie where I am genuinely shocked at the end. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen The Sixth Sense. It's from 1991 or 92, so if you haven't, I'm going to spoil it for you. Too bad, you've had two decades to watch it. I don't feel bad. In this movie, we have Bruce Willis's character, who is a, a child psychologist, an award-winning child psychologist. Um, and he has uh, come home from his award ceremony with his wife. And, and in the interaction with his wife, what, what happens is one of his previous clients has broken into his house, this young man who's very troubled. And he has a gun. And while Bruce Willis's character, and I wish I could remember the main character's name, but I don't, he ends up getting shot by his previous client. You know, and, and we see him being shot in the, in the stomach and, you know, the, the picture fades to black as this happens, as he's lying on the floor and his wife has called 911. Uh, and, and that's how the movie opens. The movie fades to black and then it's, it's now advances in time to about four years later, uh, four or five years later, and we see Bruce Willis's character then again, and he's, He's meeting with a new, a new client. Um, we get the idea that the relationship between him and his wife has been strained over that time. Uh, as, as we are shown uh, scenes with her, we find that she is distant, uh, she's feeling lonely, uh, even to the point where she, she's finding affection in, in the attention of a coworker at work. 
Uh, and every time that, that Bruce Willis's character tries to engage with her, it always, it, it ends badly. But we have this new character that's introduced, and it's this young boy. Um, it's uh, Haley Joel Osment when he was a little boy is the actor. Again, I wish I could remember the names of the actual characters, but I can't. And he has this, this problem where he claims that he can see dead people. Now, I don't recommend the film. It has some serious worldview and theological problems. But it's, it's a bit of a horror film in that way. But it's, it's this psychological thriller. And this young boy, as we see through the movie, does indeed see dead people. And Bruce Willis's character eventually comes to realize that this isn't a psychological problem that the boy has, but that it's actually true that this, this boy can actually see dead people. And, and through the process of the film, he helps this character come to terms with this and realizing that, that these ghosts who appear uh, to the young boy are, are actually asking for help, that there's something in their life that is unresolved. And so the, the young boy's character helps them, and Bruce Willis, along with them, helps this young boy uh, solve some of these problems, and he begins to, to come to terms with the fact that, that he does see dead people, but that there's positives in it. And this is sort of how the, the way the film goes all the way along. And so, you know, Bruce Willis's character feels good about this. He feels like he's resolved uh, this, uh, this problem uh, with this young boy, and he's helped him. And uh, it's, it's a very positive ending in that way. But then we come to the ending scene, and we have this unresolved thing going on between him and his wife. And she's there uh, on the couch, and she's watching their old wedding video. And he comes into the house, and, and he's about to speak to her. And she's half asleep, and she's mumbling, and she says the, she says the words. She says his name and says, why did you leave me? And he's confused. And then her hand opens up, and his wedding ring falls onto the ground. And all of a sudden, he realizes that he's actually dead. And as an audience member, as you're watching the movie, like, my mind was blown, because all of a sudden, you know, the, the temperature drops in the room, and she shudders because she feels cold, and we see his back for the first time. And it shows, you know, the bullet hole there, that he had actually died in the first scene of the movie. And it's like, boom, mind blown. You think, man, I thought I understood what was going on in the movie the whole time. I thought, I know exactly what's happening. And I was completely wrong. You know, when I go and watch the movie a second time, and I realize, you know, Every time he sits down in a chair, he doesn't move the chair. You know, the way the film is shot, it gives you idea that he's like in the middle of a conversation, but you realize nobody actually ever talks to him except for the little boy. You know, he meets his wife in the restaurant and he's late and he goes and he sits down in the chair, but the chair's already pulled out. He never touches it. And then she just leaves, doesn't say a word to him. And all of these assumptions that I had made as I was watching the movie were shown to be completely wrong.
I don't know why have I spoiled that movie for you this morning. I want to say that, that this is the same experience that both the rich young ruler and Jesus' disciples had in this interaction. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And they, exceed, they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, and sorry, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, since, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in the time, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So here we're introduced to this man. We learn that he's young. We learn that he's a ruler. And we learn that he's rich. Those details are, are spread throughout the gospel accounts. Uh, this is, there's an account of this in Luke and also in Matthew. And so we have the rich, young ruler. Now, he has a burning question. It's a genuine question. This isn't, this isn't like one of the Pharisees who had come to Jesus and would try and trap him by asking him some theological trick question. This is a man with a burden and a genuine question. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he ran. Now, my wife has been watching The Crown. I don't know if any of you have seen that. So by nature of being in the same house, I've seen a few episodes of The Crown. That's how it works. Not intentionally. It was mostly by accident. But one of the things I noticed is that whenever the queen would want to meet with somebody, 
She never went to them. They came to her. When she wanted to meet with Billy Graham, Billy Graham came to her. When she wanted to meet with the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister would come to her. It would be on very rare occasions that she would ever go to anyone else. Because that's how it works when you're a ruler. And one of the other things that I never once in the entire show saw the Queen do was run. Because again, if you are rich and you are a ruler, you don't run, nor do you kneel. I mean, if you're rich, you have people for that, right? Like you have somebody go and do all that stuff for you. They do the running. You know, that's, that's how it works. And in the ancient world, that's how it worked. And yet here is this young man, this ruler, this wealthy young man, runs up to the Lord, kneels before him, and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There are some great things in this question, isn't it? There are some very right things that this man understands about the world. He understands that, that there is life after death. That, that when you die, you will have to give account for what you've done before God. And that's true. And that's a very good worldview. It, be, it would be wonderful if, if everyone had that type of a worldview, wouldn't it? So he's on, he's on good footing to begin with his question. It's a great question. It's a question everyone should ask. But Jesus immediately begins to challenge his preconceived notions. You see what he asks him. He says, why do you call me good? You see, the rich young ruler had an idea of what good was, and Jesus saying, are you sure about that? Why do you call me good? So do you understand that there's no one good except God alone? Now, it's important for us to realize here that Jesus is not trying to say that he isn't God here. He's just asking a poignant question. He's trying to, to get the young man to think, do you really know who I am? Do you really know who it is you are asking this question of? He says, you call me good. You're right to. But do you understand what that means when you do that? You see what he's doing? He's trying to get him to think outside of his, his own box of understanding. So then he asks him this question. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, interesting that Jesus does not go through all of the commandments, does he? He doesn't go through the, the first few commandments, those ones that, that we see as being very toward God. He doesn't tell him, hey, have you honored the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? He doesn't ask him that one. He sticks to like the latter half, which is the how we treat one another. In fact, if you would look at, at each of these commandments, they're actually they're very external, aren't they? They're things that you can kind of tell about people. If you pay attention to their attitudes and behaviors, 
Well, you can tell if someone honors their father and mother by the way they behave. You can tell whether they bear false witness or not by the way they behave, or whether they steal or commit adultery or murder. Those are all things that are externally obvious if you're paying attention. And this young man says, I've kept all of these from my youth. You know what, what he left out? Do not covet. That's internal, isn't it? You can observe me and have no idea whether I covet or not. I can pay attention to your day and, and watch you for weeks on end and still have no idea whether you covet or not. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself in Romans chapter 7 would say, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. And then once I'm aware of it, I find I'm coveting everything. And I can't stop. That's a bit of a paraphrase. But that's really, it's this, that's internal, isn't it? Jesus doesn't challenge him with that. He challenges him with all the external things. And this young ruler says, no, I've, I, I've done this since my youth. Very pious man. It doesn't seem like he's being dishonest here. Seems like this is an, his honest view of himself, that he's doing his best to keep the law as best he can. And he's a very pious man. And Jesus looks on him, and he loves him. That's an important point here. The next statement that Jesus makes is not a gotcha moment. He's not trying to prove a point or win an argument. He loves him. He's telling him what he needs to hear. And he says this, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You know what Jesus didn't say to him? You're doing great. You're fine. You know what? You just keep it up. You're going to do awesome. You know, don't worry about it. Things will turn out in the end. That's kind of how we're told to deal with people today, isn't it? We just need to, you just need to affirm that everything everybody does is great and happy and wonderful. And that's how we love people. That's not how Jesus loved this young man. He loved him and he told him exactly what he needed to hear. Now, the fact that he didn't receive it very well, that doesn't make it any less loving a thing to say. And so this young man goes away disheartened because he was very wealthy. He had great possessions. And he went away sorrowful. Now, I've heard a number of different interpretations of this passage. Now, I've heard some, uh, some try to suggest that, that what Jesus is really criticizing here is a system of oppression that uh, is in place that keeps the wealthy wealthy and the poor poor. And, and really, he's calling this man to acknowledge his place in this system of oppression and to, to leave it. And so he should sell all that he has and give it to the poor. And that's what, you know, that's really what Jesus is teaching here. Um, I want to suggest that 
most of the commentators who who would give that interpretation that I think they're implying their own worldview onto the text there. I've heard those who who are uncomfortable with that kind of an idea and saying, oh no, this isn't about money at all. This isn't about wealth and you know God's okay with with wealthy people and you know it doesn't have to do anything with that. And again, I think you know I think you might be implying your own worldview onto the text here. One of the important little principles of Bible study is to find the answers in the text because Jesus actually tells us exactly why he said what he said, if we're paying attention. You see, he turns to his disciples. Now, his disciples, from their worldview, from their point of view, when they looked at this young man, this rich young ruler, they saw someone they aspired to be. You see, they in many ways were with Jesus, they were following him, and you can see this in how many times they argued about it, that one day they're going to be rulers with Jesus. That's what they were looking for. In fact, they argued about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Like, is it, you know, is it going to be James? Is it going to be John? Is it going to be Peter? No, I think it's going to be me. They wanted to be rulers. Just like this guy. And they looked at him and they saw someone who kept the law, who was a pious man. He was, he was respected. He was pious. He was wealthy. You know, in that day and age, if you were wealthy, well, you, you must be doing something right. God's honoring you because you're wealthy. God's blessed you, so you, you're, he's God's blessing. And they looked at the rich young ruler and said, that's who we want to be. And here Jesus turns to them and says, how difficult it will be for someone who has, wealth, who has wealth, for those who have wealth, to enter the kingdom of God. And their response is they're amazed at his words. They're shocked. They're dumbfounded. I mean, what do you mean? Like, that's who we want to be. He's not going to make it into the kingdom. How's that even possible? And Jesus looks at them again, and he says, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've ever done any sewing. I used to do a little bit as a kid when I had to, and the most annoying part was trying to, like, twist that little piece of thread, and you kind of lick the end, and then you're trying to get it to go through the little slot in the needle at the end because it's a very small hole. And here Jesus is saying, no, no, it's easier for a camel to go through there than for a wealthy person, a rich person, to enter the kingdom of God. It says they're exceedingly astonished. You know, they were shocked at the first statement. Now they're just blown away by the second statement. They, they thought they knew what was going on. They thought they knew how things worked. And now they're like, they have no footing left to deal with. And they ask the question, well, who then can be saved? You, you sense it in what they're saying. They're like, they're thinking like, this is the guy. If he can't make it, if he's not going to enter the kingdom, well, who? Like, it's got to be impossible for everybody. And Jesus says with man, it's impossible. We'll think of that verse in Romans that we read, chapter 3, verse 20. 
it's impossible by works of the law to be justified before God, for any human being to be justified before God by the works of the law. But with God, all things are possible. And I can't help but think that Peter's statement here is a bit desperate. I may be wrong there, but as I read it through, it feels like a desperate statement. As Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything to follow you. Like he's saying, well, what about us, Lord? Like we, we left everything. Like I had a pretty good family business going there and like it was a really, really big catch of fish that was gonna last us for a while that we got the last time you were there. And I left all that on the side of the Sea of Galilee and I followed you. Like what about us? Sure, Matthew was sitting there thinking like I had a pretty good job as a tax collector, I was doing okay. And I left all that to follow you and all of them they had things that they just dropped and left and followed Jesus. And in this little desperate question, we've left everything, Lord, and followed you. What about us? And Jesus says, exactly. See, that's really what this is all about. It's not about how good you are. It's not about following the law. It's about following Christ. And Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see, there's benefits now and in the future. I think, well, how can that be? Well, I'll tell you this. The family of God is bigger than any family you're a part of. If you have to leave your biological family, and I know that there are some in the world that in order to follow Christ, they have to do that. Well, you have gained a family that is much bigger and that is worldwide. You see, when you enter into the kingdom of God, when you follow Christ, you are brothers and sisters with every other follower of Christ. You enter into the kingdom of God. And whatever you leave behind, you gain so much more. And on top of that, you gain eternal life. You see, that's, that's really what the Christian life is all about, is, is who we follow. You know, we can, we can get caught up sometimes uh, thinking we follow different things. You know, we, we don't follow a, a set of beliefs. We don't follow a denomination. We don't follow political parties. 
Now, and, and I just, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But that's not who we follow. First and foremost, we follow Jesus Christ. You know, you know the early Christians were called? You know what Christianity was described as or the name that was given it to it in the first century? The way. And Christians were called followers of the way. We read that in the book of Acts. Well, who's the way? There's only one, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. And that is who we follow. And our righteousness, as we go back to Romans chapter 3, our righteousness is not dependent on the things that we do. It's not dependent on the rules that we follow or the group that we're a part of or some confession that was developed hundreds of years ago or fill in the blank. Our righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ and that faith is not just a mental assent to a statement saying, yes, I believe in him. It's so much more than that. It's faith in action. It's a faith that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to put our faith in him, our trust in him. It's not just saying, I believe. I mean, James would make the comment, you know, oh, you believe that God is one. Great. Demons do too. It's more than that. It's more than just saying, I believe. It's, it's putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I remember when I was a, a young person that we went on a camping trip up in the Adirondack Mountains, and we went up, I think the second tallest one, it was Mount Mary, I believe. No, Mount Mary is the tallest one. It's Mount Algonquin is the second tallest one. And we had looked on the map and we saw, oh, this should take us uh, X amount of time. And boy, we were way wrong. Because by the time we got to the bottom of the mountain around the other side and we're on our way back, it was dark. And I mean like pitch black. And the, uh, the trail, and I use that in quotes, that we were, we were walking down was a dry riverbed which you can imagine how much fun that is, in the dark. And we were in the dark um, because the one guy who brought a flashlight forgot to check the batteries beforehand, and they were dead. So we were kind of just wandering around in the dark. And, uh, you know, so we just kind of sat there, and we were like, Lord, what are we going to do now? Because uh, we're kind of lost and, and blind at the moment. And as we said amen to that prayer, I'm sure it was a little more eloquent than that, we see a little light coming down the path behind us. There was another couple who was walking the same, and they had a flashlight. And so they walked out in front of us, and we followed them. We were going to the same campsite. And we had to trust entirely that they knew where they were going because they were the ones with the light. And they could, they could shine it forward, and they could 
go the path. We had to follow them. Like we had faith that they knew where they were going. We trusted that they knew where they were going. I couldn't just sit there and say, I believe that you know the trail and then sit in the rock in the corner and get to where I was going. I had to take each step of faith and follow. You know, and sometimes we can, we can think that faith is just a, an exercise of the mind. But when we read the word of God, we don't find that. We don't find that as being what it is. Faith is trust. Faith is following the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to challenge you with that this morning. You know, we, we all have preconceived notions sometimes. We all, have, we all think we might know the way things are. And uh, you know, the disciples did, and their minds were blown, and their world was shook. And you know, even all the way up into the point where Jesus was arrested, they thought they knew what was going to happen even though he had told them time and again that he was going to have to die and three days later rise again, they still didn't get it. And it wasn't until that he appeared to them after he had risen from the grave that they finally understood that they'd had it wrong all along. And they began to really follow. They really understood who Jesus was and follow him. And I just want to, I want to challenge us to, to follow the Lord Jesus, you know, to open up his word and to study it and to, to understand what it says, what it says about him, what it says to be true, but then to live out that faith, to follow him in our day-to-day -day lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We just give you thanks. We thank you that you have told us in your word that any who lack wisdom, if we would ask for it, that you will grant it. And so, Father, we, we do continue to pray for wisdom. Help us to understand more and more each day about you and who you are. Um, Father, we just pray that, that our faith would not just be uh, something that we do on Sundays, uh, but, Father, it would be something that we live out each day of our life. Uh, help us to, to follow the Lord Jesus, to trust in him, to put our faith in him, to know that, that he knows where he's going. He knows the, the path of our life. He knows what is good for us and that we might learn to, to follow him, to trust him. Father, we just give thanks again for this time that we've had in your word, and we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>